0: Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the eighth and final part of General Conference Chicken McNuggets. Yes, believe it or not, and I can hardly believe it, we are to the final session of October 2019 General Conference. In the previous seven episodes, we have gone through all the other talks in General Conference, or at least those that I deemed worthy to comment on. I cannot believe that it took seven episodes to get us this far, and that it will take us an eighth episode to get us all the way through last General Conference. As I mentioned before, I thought this would be a one-part episode just hitting the highlights, but as I have dug deeper into General Conference, I have found that there is more and more to talk about. And that's a good thing because what I have been doing, as my listeners know, is trying to increase the output of Radio Free Mormon podcasts in order to help those who are sheltering at home due to the coronavirus pandemic. Last week, I put out five episodes, the regularly scheduled episode on Sunday and then four more episodes on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday this week. I am happy to announce that I have managed to put out one episode every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and today is Friday, April 3rd, 2020. And we will get the commentary on last General Conference in under the wire right before April General Conference of 2020 begins. If you go to the homepage of the LDS Church's website, you will find a countdown clock at the very top. It says, watch General Conference April 4th and 5th. And beneath that, there is a countdown clock that is ticking. At this point, as I record this, there is one day, two hours and 11 minutes and four, three, two, one seconds remaining until we commence April General Conference. But before I get to the commentary on the last session of General Conference from October of 2019, I want to share a few things with you. First off, yesterday I was driving home, I'm driving down the interstate, and while I'm driving I'm talking with my daughter who lives in Utah. Don't get your hopes up, this is one of the daughters who still talks to me. There is still a daughter who does not talk to me, and obviously I would not be talking with the daughter who doesn't talk to me. As I am driving down the road, I'm going under an overpass, and on the overpass, I see a big yellow sign posted there. And on this yellow sign, in big black letters, are printed the words, Jesus or Hell. I was on the phone with my daughter as I saw this, and I said, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And I told her what the sign said. And I told her, I said, things are getting really weird up here. And my daughter on the other end of the line said, hmm, well, that's just another day down here in Utah. But I thought a little bit about that sign, Jesus or hell, and the message that's implied behind it. First off, I'm wondering if the Jesus they're referring to is the Jesus who unleashed this coronavirus epidemic on the world, or is he the Jesus who just allowed it to happen? Is he the Jesus who just stood by while Satan unleashed it on the world? And Jesus didn't do anything to stop it because, hey, he doesn't want to get involved. And as I thought a little bit more about it, it occurred to me that this was probably put up there by a fundamental evangelical Christian of some sort or another. A Christian who believes that you have to accept Jesus as your personal savior, or you're going to spend eternity weltering in the fires of hell. And the thought came to me that if we're talking about a Jesus or a God who says, I'm gonna burn in hell forever if I don't believe in them, then I think I'll take hell every day of the week. Thank you very much. I mean, can you imagine a God who says to his children, If you don't believe in me, then I'm gonna punish you excruciatingly eternally. That just seems like a little bit of an overreaction. Okay, now there are a few items in the news that I wanna talk about before I get to the last session of last General Conference. The first is an article that appeared in the church news reporting a talk given by Elder Holland, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland regarding the coronavirus. It is titled, Shelter in Place, Spiritually and Physically, Elder Holland says, as isolation orders continue around the world. This was published two days ago on April 1st, but no, I do not think it is an April Fool's joke. It is a longish and somewhat rambling article on a talk he gave, and the very fact it was a talk he gave made me wonder, where is he giving this talk? Are people actually assembling even as late as April 1st, 2020, in spite of government orders and directives not to gather together? And as I looked at it more closely, it appears that this is framed in terms of his giving a talk, but really what he's doing is he's talking to the church news. In other words, he's giving an interview, which is being portrayed for some reason or other as a talk. And he says a number of things in this interview, in this article. But it is the last paragraph that caught my attention and the paragraph I wanna share with you because here's what he says about God's relationship with the coronavirus and stopping the coronavirus. He who created this marvelous world in which we live can say to any of the elements in it, this far and no farther. That is what he will say to this blight we are facing. So actually, Elder Holland is saying that God, at any time he wants, can say to the coronavirus, this far and no farther. He can turn it away at any point that he desires because he's God, he's got the power. And of course, the question arises, okay, so why doesn't he say it? Is there any influence that you could have, Elder Holland, on getting God to say this far and no farther and turn back this blight we are facing? Didn't we just have a worldwide day of fasting and prayer this past Sunday in order to accomplish just that? Well, apparently, God hasn't gotten the message yet. Maybe the lines are down or maybe God just isn't ready to turn back this blight yet. So how does Elder Holland reconcile this fact that the blight continues to increase across the world in spite of the fact that God could turn it back anytime he wanted? Well, what he ends up saying is that when that point comes, whenever it comes that this blight gets turned back, well, it's God who did it, which is a very convenient argument with an added benefit of being completely unfalsifiable. I'm not making this up. Here's what he says. In the presence of his majesty, even subatomic sized creations must bend, if only figuratively. And each in its own way confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, the great redeemer of all. So apparently this coronavirus at some point is going to have to bend the knee and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, according to Elder Holland. And he concludes with this observation. Under the direction of his father, The Savior is in charge of the destiny of this world. We are in very sure and loving hands. Well... I'm not sure, (laughs) well, they may be sure hands, but I'm not sure how loving they are. I guess it depends upon whether you're one of these people who has contracted the virus or know somebody who's contracted the virus and possibly died from it. I'm not sure how loving they would say those hands are, but it is Elder Holland's opinion that those hands are both sure and loving. So at some point, God is going to say to the coronavirus this far and no farther, and we will know when God says that because that will be the point at which the coronavirus finally goes away. Isn't it comforting to be in the care of such very sure and loving hands? And isn't it comforting to hear the words of a prophet, seer, and revelator on the subject? Though I am not a prophet, seer, or a revelator, if I were giving a talk that was going to be quoted on the church website, I might say that God's barber, the Grim Reaper, is currently taking a little off the top. But that's probably not as inspiring as Elder Holland and why it is that I am never going to be quoted in an article on the church website. Now, as I say, General Conference is coming up this weekend now, and it is clear from what President Nelson has said about it last General Conference that this General Conference is going to be devoted primarily to celebrating and commemorating the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's First Vision. And in order to get ahead of the curve a bit, there was an article that was released in the Church News yesterday, on April 2nd, 2020. Now, everybody in my audience doubtless knows that there are several problematic aspects to the different accounts of Joseph Smith's First Vision. So, what is the Church going to do when they're talking about the First Vision in general conference in order to deal with with these problematic aspects? Well, one would think that they'll probably try primarily to ignore them and avoid them. And yet, this article appears to be trying to get ahead of the game a bit and dealing, although somewhat vaguely and tangentially and definitely from an apologetic point of view, with the problematic issues related to the First Vision. The title of the article hints at this by stating, Why are there multiple accounts of the First Vision and what can we learn from them? Once again, that's the headline on the article from the Church News from April 2nd, 2020. Now, I'm not going to go through this entire article but I did note a familiar name. In the article, Elder Kyle S. McKay. You may remember Elder Kyle S. McKay. I certainly remember him. He was my first companion in Japan. He was the first senior missionary companion that I had after I got to Japan back in January of 1980. He has gone on to become a General Authority Seventy but I did not know until I read this article that he is also an assistant executive director of the church history department. Well, congratulations, Elder McKay. I think that's great. But Elder McKay ends up getting quoted extensively in this article. So he has a lot to do with church history. He has a lot to do with the first vision accounts, especially what with it being the 200th anniversary and all. And this is a long article in which they do mention all four different accounts that Joseph Smith gave of his first vision. I thought this paragraph was interesting. Joseph Smith published two accounts of the first vision during his lifetime. Now we know that that was the 1838 account and the 1842 account, the church history account and the Wentworth letter account. Then it goes on. Two other accounts recorded by Joseph were published by the church in the 1960s. Now that is a sentence that is remarkable for everything it does not say as opposed to what it does say. Of course, those two other accounts were the 1832 account and the 1835 account. The 1832 account, we know, was the account that Joseph Fielding Smith had cut out of the letter book in which it was contained and hidden in his safe for three decades until the existence of that document was leaked to the public, after which he had it surreptitiously taped back into the letter book from which he had cut it approximately 30 years before. And ultimately, that was published not first by the church, but first by the quintessential anti-Mormons Gerald and Sandra Tanner. Yes, they are the people who were the first to publish the 1832 account of Joseph Smith's First Vision. The church thereafter published it. The 1835 account was also apparently hidden away In the church archives, and I did a podcast on that account as well. But that account did not see the light of day in published form until 1966, a year after the 1832 account was published. So when it says two other accounts recorded by Joseph were published by the church in the 1960s, the first question that I would think if I'm reading this is why did it take so long for them to publish these two accounts? And is there a reason that they seem to be so reticent in bringing these forward? And indeed, There is and there are, but I'm not going to go into that again here. I just read this paragraph because I find it somewhat amusing. And then if you scroll down far enough into this article, you get to a section that is titled, surprisingly enough, Expected Inconsistencies. And the reason I find this surprising is not that it tries to frame the inconsistencies in the accounts as expected inconsistencies. Of course, these are what we would expect to have. In an account, we would expect to have inconsistencies, and since they're expected, they're no big problem, which is the underlying message here. The thing that surprises me is that they call them inconsistencies at all. And the first paragraph under that subsection states, each of the multiple first vision accounts provides different perspectives and was articulated to a different audience. Remember, that's of course the apologetic that underlies the reason for the expected consistencies. But then it says this, and yes, there are inconsistencies in the narratives. This article in the Church News actually admits that. Now, it's not going to talk about what the inconsistencies are, but it is going to admit there are inconsistencies in the narratives, and I think that is remarkable. And one of those inconsistencies that we know about is that in the 1832 account of the First Vision that Joseph Smith wrote with his own hand, the first and earliest account that we have of the First Vision, he says not that he saw two beings in the grove, the Father and the Son, as in subsequent accounts. Instead, he reports only seeing one being, in the grove. Now, it's a funny thing because I think about the English language, right? And if I were to say that Joseph Smith saw only one being in the grove, the other side comes back and says, no, he didn't say he saw only one being in the grove. He could have seen two beings in the grove, but he reported seeing just the one. So while I think it is probably technically then incorrect to say that Joseph Smith said he saw only one being in the grove, I think it is correct to say that Joseph Smith only said he saw one being in the grove. The placement of the only in that sentence makes all the difference. And once again, while that is technically true, it still seems a bit odd that if you saw two beings in a vision, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, and you're writing about it subsequently, that you would mention seeing only one of those beings and not the other. Now, we know that the sentence in question in the 1832 account of the first vision is where Joseph Smith wrote that, "...the Lord opened the heavens, and I saw the Lord." And one of the apologetic responses to that is, well, hey, he says he saw two beings. There's the Lord and there's the Lord, the Lord who opened the heavens and the Lord he saw. It's not exactly the most convincing argument in the world, but while I was driving to work today, I thought of an additional argument from the scriptures that might help buttress the apologist's point in this regard. So here I give this argument to the Mormon apologist at no extra charge. There's a somewhat famous scripture I believe it's Psalm number 110, and the reason it's famous is because it gets quoted a number of times in the New Testament. Yes, it is in Psalm 110. I just looked it up. Verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies. Thy footstool. Now that's a familiar passage to most of us because it is quoted a number of times in the Gospels and also in subsequent parts of the New Testament. Now it's a somewhat confusing passage, but I think one thing that's clear is that it refers to two beings, one who is speaking to the other. It's the Lord who says unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. I don't think anybody would say that these two people are the same person, because one is speaking to the other and telling the other person to sit at the first person's right hand. And yet And yet both of them are referred to by the same title and both of them are referred to as Lord. So in the same way that Psalm 110 verse one says, the Lord said unto my Lord, and they are two beings. Even so, Joseph Smith said, the Lord opened the heavens and I saw the Lord. And it doesn't have to be one being because he's using the same title for both. So as I say, That's an apologetic argument I came up with on the way to work. I give it to the Mormon apologist for no additional charge. I only ask that if you use it, that you cite me as your source. Radio Free Mormon is the one who came up with that one. And honestly, like most ideas of this sort, I cannot guarantee you that nobody in the history of Mormonism has ever come up with this argument. All I know is that I haven't read it before. It's new to me, and so I share it with you. You're welcome. Okay, that's about all we have now for... News items, let's jump into General Conference for Crying Out Loud. If we're going to get done with this last session today, we better get started. Sunday afternoon session, first up to bat is President Henry B. Eyring. His talk is Holiness and the Plan of Happiness. Now he starts off his talk by saying, My dear brothers and sisters, I have prayed for the power to help you in your personal search for happiness. Some might feel happy enough already, yet surely no one would reject the offer of more happiness, well, duh, anyone would be eager to accept a guaranteed offer of lasting happiness. So here he presents the gospel message as a guaranteed offer of lasting happiness. This is the part of the talk where he says that if you follow the commandments, if you join the church and if you follow all the commandments, if you do everything that you're supposed to do, you are guaranteed this offer of lasting happiness. All you have to do is accept it by giving your life over to the LDS church. Now, I have noted for some time now that in general conference, there are always two classes of talks. There's one class of talks, and there's usually several talks on this subject, that if you do everything that you're supposed to do and everything that the leaders of the church tell you to do, you are guaranteed this lasting happiness. But then there's another set of talks that are given in every general conference, which seems to give a different message. Instead of this guaranteed offer of lasting happiness if you do everything that you're supposed to do, this other set of talks says, if you've done everything you're supposed to do and you're still miserable, well then, dot, dot, dot. And then come the excuses as to why it is that this guaranteed offer of happiness really isn't quite so guaranteed as the first set of talks make it appear. And in some talks, you even get both of these messages within the same talk. And this is one of those examples with President Eyring's talk. First off, he starts off with this guaranteed offer of lasting happiness. Going down a bit in his talk, he says, my prayer for today is that I may help you understand that greater happiness comes from greater personal holiness. So there's the connection, right? As you increase in holiness, your happiness increases. As you do more of what the leaders of the church tell you to do, your holiness grows, and as your holiness grows, your happiness grows. It's really simple, isn't it? Unfortunately, when the rubber hits the road, it's not always that simple. Again, he says, my prayer for today is that I may help you understand that greater happiness comes from greater personal holiness. Why? So that you will act Upon that belief. In other words, you'll get in line with what I'm telling you to do. I will then share what I know for myself about what we can do to qualify for that gift of becoming ever more holy and it's really very simple he's going to give us a thumbnail sketch now of what it is we have to do in order to be more holy and therefore become more happy and it's what we expect the scriptures teach us that among other things see this is this isn't an exclusive laundry list of things we have to do this is just among other things that we have to do to be happy the scriptures teach us that among other things we can be sanctified or become more holy remember being more holy is being more happy in the talk that we can become more holy when we exercise faith in christ demonstrate our obedience. Boy, that covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? Demonstrate our obedience, repent, sacrifice for him. So we've also got to sacrifice. Receive sacred ordinances and keep our covenants with him. So that pretty much covers everything in a short list, doesn't it? All we have to do is demonstrate our obedience, sacrifice, receive all the ordinances that the LDS Church has to give us, and then keep our covenants with him. That's really all we have to do in order to become holy, and that's what we have to do in order to become happy. See how this message is being put out there by President Eyring. And then if we go down a couple more pages in his talk, he gets to the flip side of the argument, and he asks this question. Some listening today may be wondering, why do I not feel the peace and happiness promised to those who have been faithful? <laughs> I'm sorry. It just cracks me up. It's in the same talk. He's got these conflicting messages. Why do I not feel the peace and happiness promised to those who have been faithful? Some of you listening to me today may be wondering, I have been faithful through terrible adversity, but I don't feel happiness. So first, President Iron gives you a guarantee of happiness if you do everything you're supposed to do, and if you're faithful, if you are obedient, sacrifice, and keep all the covenants. But some people might say, why don't I feel happy? I'm doing everything you're telling me to do. Why don't I feel this happiness? And now we get to the second side of the message. That second message, that if you, <laughs> that if you do everything you're supposed to do, and you're still not happy, well, it's a test, okay? God's giving you a test, because God likes tests. It's a pop quiz of sorts. And he gives the example, of course, of Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, and he gives the example of Job. So, they were righteous in spite of their afflictions, and therefore, and therefore, they were blessed even more by God. They received Even more happiness. So, the thing I found interesting about this is that both of those messages are contained in the same talk by President Eyring, and apparently he doesn't even bat an eye when he says them. But, sandwiched in between these two conflicting messages about happiness through obedience is a story, and once again, it's President Eyring, so you know it's got to be a story about President Eyring going to somebody to give a blessing. So, as soon as you know that, you've got to wince, because whenever President Eyring goes to give somebody a blessing, it's not going to end well for that person. I'm gonna to go to the effort of getting the clip of this out and play it for you because you've gotta hear him say it. But this is what he says. In recent weeks, I have been at the bedside of people who could face death, oh no, oh no. He's going to the bedsides of people who are ill and he's giving them blessings. And of course, they're going to die. For the love of Mike, will somebody please keep President Iring away from the hospitals? Will somebody please keep him away from sick people? Nothing good will come of this. We know that, we listen to his stories. Nothing good ever comes of it. The last person I would wanna see at my bedside, if I were seriously ill, would be President Iring. I mean, if I just had a head cold, he's the last person I'd wanna see at my bedside. He is like the LDS version of Jack Kevorkian. He is Dr. Death. And indeed, that's what's gonna happen. In recent weeks, I have been at the bedside of people who can face death. With full faith in the Savior and with happy countenances. You see, here's where it starts shifting. If you are faithful, you will be happy. But now these people are facing death. They're having the shock of seeing President Irene come into their room, and yet they have happy countenances. Why? Because they have faith in the Savior. Obviously, they're not aware yet of what it means to have President Irene come to visit them if they have happy countenances. He goes on. One was a man surrounded by, oh, and my gosh, this isn't just one story. He talks about people, plural. Will someone please stop this man? In recent weeks, I have been at the bedside of people. That's plural. This is more than just one person. But he only gives us the example of one person. One was a man surrounded by his family. He and his wife were chatting quietly as my son and I entered. Why do his son and he entered? Because there's two of them. Why are there two of them? Because they're gonna give him a blessing. He doesn't say it, but we all know the drill. I had known them for many years. I had seen the atonement of Jesus Christ work in their lives and in the lives of their family members. They had together chosen to end medical efforts to prolong his life. So they're stopping the medical efforts, he's just gonna pass away. But notice that the reliance was always on medical efforts. He's not saying that they stopped medical efforts and decided to rely on the power of the priesthood as represented by President Iring and his son coming in to give him a blessing. No, instead, any hope they have of being healed is based on medicine. Any hope they have of dying is apparently based on President Eyring. And was it a question of not having enough faith in Jesus, no, because when he introduces the story, remember he says, "In recent weeks, I have been at the bedside of people who could face death with full faith in the Savior." Well, if they have full faith in the Savior, don't the scriptures teach us that that means that they would have faith to be healed? Apparently not. Once again, they had together chosen to end medical efforts to prolong his life. There was a quiet feeling as he spoke to us. He smiled as he expressed gratitude for the gospel and its purifying effects on him and the family he loved. And the priesthood that he knew could not heal him. No, I added that last part. Okay, and the family he loved. He spoke of his happy years of service in the temple. At this man's request, my son anointed his head with consecrated oil. I sealed the anointing. So there is a blessing. It's specifically stated here. Is he going to heal him? Is he going to act like an apostle of Jesus Christ for crying out loud and actually heal somebody? No, because that was not the impression that he got from the Holy Ghost. He says, as I did, I had a clear impression to tell him that he would soon see his Savior face to face. <laughs> Dr. Death strikes again. And then after another paragraph of talking about anything other than how the priesthood healed this man, President Eyring concludes, he died hours later. I'm going to get that audio clip right now and put it in here so you can hear this story about the healing power of the priesthood in President Iring's own words and why it is that when it comes to General Conference Death March stories, President Iring is the king. Play the tape.
1: In recent weeks, I have been at the bedside of people who could face death with full faith in the Savior and with happy countenances. One was a man surrounded by his family. He and his wife were ch- chatting quietly as my son and I entered the bedroom. I had known them for many years. I had seen the Atonement of Jesus Christ work in their lives and in the lives of their family members. They had together chosen to end medical efforts to prolong His life. There was a quiet feeling as He spoke to us. He smiled as He expressed gratitude for the gospel and its purifying effects on him and the family he loved. He spoke of his happy years of service in the temple. At this man's request, my son anointed his head with consecrated oil. I sealed the anointing. As I did, I had a clear impression to tell him that he would soon see his Savior face to face. I promised him that he would feel happiness, love, and the Savior's approval. He he smiled warmly as we left. His last words to me were, tell Kathy I love her. (laughs) My wife, Kathleen, over many years had encouraged generations of his family to accept the Savior's invitation to come unto Him, make deep and sacred and keep sacred covenants, and so qualify for the happiness that comes as a result of that greater holiness. He died hours later.
0: Okay, now we get to the next talk, which is called Knowing, Loving, and Growing by Elder Hans T. Boom. I love that name, B-O-O-M, Hans T. Boom. And I don't know if he intended the pun on his last name or not, but he talks about a gong, not elder gong in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, but a literal gong in an orchestra. He talks about how in 2016, the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square came to visit the Netherlands, and Belgium, and they brought all their instruments with them, and they even brought this huge gong, and it was a massive gong, and he reflected that obviously this was a huge pain in the took us to have to bring this gong all the way over and cart it around from place to place, but that even though it was so big and obviously so much trouble, it was only used very few times in the actual performance of the musical numbers. He says, I reflected that without the sound of the gong, the performance would not be the same, and so the effort had to be made to move this big gong all the way across the ocean. So here we have Elder Boom talking about a big gong and he draws, I think, a nice homily from this story. He says, sometimes we might feel that we are, like that gong, good enough, only to play a minor part in the performance. But let me tell you that your sound is making all the difference. I like to think that Elder Boom is talking directly to me when he says that. I don't know if he really is, but that's what I like to think, that my sound is making all the difference. And then he talks a little bit about ministering to other people. And one of the main messages he has is that we minister by creating an environment of love and we don't need to tell other people what it is that they need to change in their lives to be better people because really they already know that themselves. We just need to create an environment of love so that they can have the support they need to make those changes on their own. I thought that was a pretty good message. Here's the way he puts it. The way is to help each other understand who we are by ministering to each other. So once again, this word ministering is gaining greater usage in General Conference after the home teaching program was changed to be called the ministering program. Hashtag, President Nelson is a prophet. To me, he says, ministering is exercising divine love. In that way, we create an environment where both the giver and receiver obtain a desire to repent. In other words, we change direction and come closer to and become more like our savior, Jesus Christ. Now he says this, for instance, There is no need to constantly tell our spouse or children how they can improve. They know that already. And of course, when I read this, the thought came to me, well, does this message apply equally to the leaders of the church who seem to be telling us all the time how we can improve and what we need to do to change and to be better people? Once again, he says, for instance, there is no need to constantly tell our spouse or children how they can improve. They know that already. Would the church leaders would take Elder Boom's advice. But then... In a clever twist, he turns around and does exactly what it is that he says we shouldn't do. He tells us what we should do in order to improve and be better people. Not kidding. In this way, repentance becomes a daily process of refining that might include apologizing for poor behavior. So here he tells us what we should do in order to improve after telling us, that you shouldn't tell somebody what they need to do in order to improve. And after that, he repeats his original thought, we all know where we can do better. There is no need to repeatedly remind each other. So, first off, I think that is a good sentiment. Second off, I wish the leaders of the church would follow that advice. And third, even Elder Boom should follow his own advice when he suggests that we should apologize for our poor behavior. But good my brother, do not as some ungracious pastors do show me the steep and thorny path to heaven whilst like a puffed and reckless libertine himself the primrose path of dalliance treads and wrecks not his own reed. End of gratuitous Shakespeare quote. Now I'm not saying we should not apologize for our poor behavior, but in the middle of a talk where he's saying that you don't need to be told what you need to do because you already know it, he doesn't really need to tell us what we need to do because yeah, we already know it. Oh, and down here toward the end of his talk, he says this. People will notice the light about us as we're doing all these good things and following all the commandments. People will notice the light and will be drawn to it. That is the kind of missionary work that will draw others to come and see, come and help, and come and stay. And here he touches on this idea in Mormonism that if we are faithful Mormons, there will be this sort of heavenly light that will emanate from our countenance and other people will be able to see it and they'll say, hey, what's that light about your countenance? And then we'll say, hey, I'm a Mormon. And then they'll say, oh, can I find out more? And then they'll end up joining the church. We've all heard stories like this, but I want to tell you my favorite story about this. This was back when I had just gotten back from my mission. So this is probably in 1982. I am auditioning for a musical, it was the Zilker Summer Musical, it was called the Zilker Summer Musical because it was held at the outdoor theater in Zilker Park, anyway. This is an indoor audition in the gym down in Austin, Texas, and I am up there and I've got my T-shirt on and I've got my jazz pants on and I've got my jazz shoes on and I'm auditioning to beat the band and I end up getting a part in the chorus, but this is before the casting had actually occurred. This is at the audition phase and the audition's over, I'm sweaty, I'm standing up on the stage and I'm wiping the sweat off of my face with a towel and this other guy comes walking up to me and I've never seen this other guy before and he comes walking up to me with a smile, he seems like a nice guy guy and he says to me, he says, hey, are you a Mormon? And immediately I'm thinking exactly what Elder Bloom is talking about. I'm thinking, oh, there must be this wonderful light emanating from me. This guy can tell it. And so therefore he knows that I, a complete stranger, must be Mormon. And I say, as humbly as I possibly can, why, yes, I am. How did you know? And this guy looks at me and he says, because Mormons are the only people I know who wear t-shirts under t-shirts. ha 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 Yeah, I had my garments on. So this guy was a Mormon. He was actually inactive at the time. His name was Rusty Fuller. We ended up becoming very good friends. But it wasn't the light coming from my countenance that clued him into the fact I was Mormon. It was the fact that I was wearing my garments under my t-shirt. A fact that was plainly obvious to everybody, apparently. Yeah, I stopped doing that so much after a while. In fact, that was probably the last night I did it. Okay, now we get to the talk by Elder Peter M. Johnson. It's called Power to Overcome the adversary. And once again, he talks about personal revelation. He doesn't go on and on about it, but he talks about it very briefly. And he talks about it in exactly the same way that President Eyring talked about it in a prior general conference. Remember, the leaders of the church can receive revelation. Members of the church can receive revelation, but there's a distinction to be made there. The leaders of the church receive revelation from God. They're open to receiving any kind of revelation that God happens to feel inclined to give them. The members of the church, however, do not have such an expansive opportunity to receive revelation. Instead, the only revelation that we are really entitled to receive is confirming revelation, i.e. revelation that confirms that what the leaders have told us is true. If we get a revelation that's different than that, then it's not coming from the right source. It's not revelation from God. Our mind is either playing tricks on us or we're getting it from, well, you know. But he adopts and repeats this phrase, at the beginning of his talk, he says, It is my prayer that we will recognize the confirming influence of the Holy Ghost as we come to fully understand that we are children of God. And then he quotes from the family, a proclamation to the world. This is also something that we see more and more frequently. The family, a proclamation to the world being quoted in general conference as if it were, for all intents and purposes, actually scripture. And more and more, that is what it is being treated as scripture worthy of being quoted in general conference. We also see the same interesting phenomenon with the handbook of general instruction. The handbook of general instruction frequently gets quoted in general conference with the idea that that is also scripture, pseudo-scripture, but at a minimum, divine revelation. And by the way, can I just mention here that the leaders of the church have come up with a number of ways in order to circumvent the cumbersome process of presenting new revelations and new doctrines and new policies to the church for a sustaining vote. One of those ways is to simply issue a proclamation signed by all 12 members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the three members of the First Presidency. That is a proclamation. It is not presented to the church for a sustaining vote. Indeed, the proclamation on the family has never been presented to the church for a sustaining vote, and yet it is treated as scripture in fact i call it super scripture because copies of that proclamation are regularly framed and hung on the wall of latter-day saint households what other passage of scripture is given that kind of honor and deference what other passage of scripture has that kind of influence you don't see a page from the book of mormon framed and put up on the wall of lds houses you don't see a passage from the bible on the walls of lds houses but you do see the proclamation on the family. And so in this way, by the simple expedient of signing a proclamation, church leaders have come up with a really, really convenient way of making things scripture or even superscripture without having to present them for a sustaining vote to the membership. Similarly, the church is regularly modifying and changing and adding to and taking from the church handbook of instruction. And sometimes those changes are merely procedural, but a lot of those changes are actually doctrinal and foundational. And the Handbook of General Instructions governs how the church is run and even includes doctrinal teachings within its pages. For instance, in November of 2005, when the handbook was modified to say that people living in a gay relationship, whether married or not, were now considered apostates and their children could not receive the ordinances of salvation, it would be hard to say that that is not a doctrinal change. And yet, and yet, it was a doctrinal change that was done by changing the language in the handbook and never having to present it to the membership for a sustaining vote. So the church can effectively create new scripture and change doctrine by making new proclamations and by changing the language in the handbook and thereby avoid the messy and complicated and obviously somewhat cumbersome process of having the members of the church vote on it. It seems that the only thing that the members get to vote on anymore is sustaining the leaders of the church, and if they vote against it, Well, they're ignored anyway, and they have to talk to their state president about it. They have to go see the principal. I did a two-part episode a number of years ago now called The Apostolic Coup d'Etat. And I think I would add this observation to that because the apostles have effectively taken over the church from the membership of the church. The way the church was originally constructed and the revelations that are still in the Doctrine and Covenants talk about nothing being done by the leadership of the church without the common consent of the members. And yet everything that happens in the church now is done without the common consent of the members. They have come up with a variety of mechanisms in order to make that happen. And so far, it seems like nobody's really paying attention or nobody really cares. And if you wonder why it is that no revelations have been presented to the church for a vote to be added to the Doctrine and Covenants in over 100 years, this is the reason why, because the leaders have found ways to effectively add scripture to the Doctrine and Covenants without actually adding scripture to the Doctrine and Covenants. Instead, they issue proclamations, and instead they insert new scripture and new doctrine into the General Handbook of Instructions. And in this way, they can avoid having to present those doctrines, those changes to the membership of the church for a vote, and they can simply proclaim them by fiat. In this way, the General Handbook of Instructions has effectively become the second volume of the Doctrine and Covenants, the one that the members don't get to vote on. Okay, back to Elder Johnson's talk. He goes on and he talks about how the devil is out to get us, and he uses three primary tactics and he labels them all as starting with the letter D. He knows of your divine heritage and seeks to limit your earthly and heavenly potential by using the three D's. That should be easy to remember since devil starts with D2. Those three D's are deception, distraction, and discouragement. And then he talks about all three of those for a bit. Under distraction, he once again hits the theme about the dangers of the internet. In our day, there are many distractions, including Twitter, Facebook, virtual reality games, and Radio Free Mormon. No, actually, he just says, and much more. I like to think I'm in that much more. These These technological advances are amazing. Well, thank you very much. But if we are not careful, they can distract us from fulfilling our divine potential. So once again, we need less Wi-Fi and more Nephi. Under discouragement, he has this to say. We may get discouraged when we compare ourselves to others or feel we are not living up to expectations, including our own. Now, this is fascinating to me. He says that we can get discouraged because we feel we are not living up to expectations. Well, what about the expectations that are placed upon the membership of the church by the leadership of the church? We are the ones who are supposed to be perfect and obey with exactness. Remember President Nelson's expression, every single thing, and there are hundreds of them that we are supposed to do as members of the church. We cannot live up to those expectations. Nobody can live up to those expectations. We are comparing ourselves to a sinless being for crying out loud. And we are told, quoting Matthew 5, 48, "'Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven.'" is perfect. Mormons take that literally. We are told that we literally need to be as perfect as our Father in Heaven. There is no way we can live up to those expectations. And yes, Elder Johnson is right that we may get discouraged when we compare ourselves to others or feel we are not living up to expectations, especially when the other person that we're comparing ourselves to is Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father, for crying out loud. And I think that there was a talk in the session of Women's Conference that talked about exactly this sort of thing. The discouragement that we as members feel because we cannot live up to the expectations that the church puts on us. It runs wide, it runs deep, and this is the reason for it. I do want to say something positive about his talk, and it may seem a small thing to you, but it's a big thing to me because all of these talks, when we hear them in general conference, these are talks that are written out. They are written in order to be read, and they will be published indeed in the following issue of the Enzyme magazine. So when they're writing these talks, they're writing it for an audience that they expect to be reading the talks. Now there's a difference, see, there's a difference between giving a talk that is supposed to be listened to versus giving a talk that is supposed to be read. For the most part, I speak extemporaneously to you as I'm doing now. And this is something that is hopefully more interesting to listen to than it would be if I were simply reading something that I had taken a lot of time to write out. If you go over to the Fair Mormon website or the Interpreter website and listen to a podcast where they have somebody reading an article, an article that somebody wrote to be published in a journal, it is more often than not extremely tedious to listen to that person read an article. And that's because the article was written to be read, not to be spoken. And the same thing applies to the overwhelming majority of general conference talks. Those were written in order to be read, and then they get up in general conference and they read them, and so it's extremely boring. They're not just talking to the audience, they're reading something they wrote before. And in fact, I read somewhere that President Roosevelt, Teddy, not Franklin, was known to be a great speaker, and he would write his talks. But the way he did it was he would first record his talks. He would speak extemporaneously and he would record them on the rather new technology at the time of being able to actually speak and have what you said recorded on a cylinder. And then he would take that cylinder, give it to a secretary and have the secretary write it down as he had spoken it. So then, when he read his speech, he was actually reading the words that he had originally spoken extemporaneously, and that was considered to be one of the keys to his being such an effective speaker. Now, I say all that to say this, that Elder Johnson, when he's giving this talk, does something, and he does it three times, where it sounds like he is speaking instead of just reading something that he has written. There are four things that he is suggesting that people do. The first is, remember that the first and great commandment is to love God with our heart, might, mind, and strength. That one's not different. But second, third, and fourth are, he says, second, pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus Christ every day, every day, every day. He says it three times. You wouldn't write that if you're writing it just to be read, but you would say that. And I appreciate the fact that he says that because that stuck out to me a mile when he did this. And he does the same thing three times. He says, third, read and study the Book of Mormon every day, every day, every day. If we were in Japan, you'd say Mainichi, Mainichi, but he's saying it in English. Now, anybody else in general conference, would just say, read and study the Book of Mormon every day, period. But no, he makes it more interesting. He speaks the expression. He's giving a talk that is more like a person would say it than they would write it. And he says, read and study the Book of Mormon every day, every day, every day. And lastly, he says, prayerfully partake of the sacrament every week, every week, every week. It is so rarely that we see something or that I hear something in general conference that actually sounds like a human being talking to another human being that I want to point it out and give it applause where I see it. And this is really the first time that I can recall ever seeing anything like this. So kudos to you, Elder Johnson. Live long and prosper. And hopefully you'll be speaking in General Conference more often in the future. Oh, he does something else that I noticed along these lines. Now, we all know that in General Conference, there is this excessive alliteration. And I think you probably know that alliteration means repeating words in a sentence that start with the same letter and P's are the worst. Elder Bednar, We'll talk on and on about uh, priesthood power policies and principles. You see, it just drives you crazy, not to mention pickles. It's as if the leaders of the church think that using alliteration is a sign of higher learning and literary prowess when actually alliteration must be used sparingly, if at all, in order for it to be effective. Like in Romeo and Juliet where Shakespeare has Juliet saying, Gallop apace, ye fiery footed steeds. See, there's some alliteration there. But it's minor and it's used effectively. Gallop apace, ye fiery footed steeds. She doesn't say, gallop apace, you powerful priesthood principles. That would be too much. <laughs> but it's like the leaders of the church almost have this competition going on as to who can use the most words to start with the same letter. They need to understand, or somebody needs to tell them, or if they're listening to this program, as I know that members of the Strengthening Church Members Committee are, please pass along the message alliteration is not a sign of literary prowess. It is a lower form of literature. Alliteration is to literature as a pun is to humor. A pun is the lowest form of humor. Alliteration is the lowest form of literature. Please, Elder Dykes, if you're listening, and I know you are, pass it along, would you? Thanks in advance. And once again, I bring that up because this speaker, Elder Johnson, doesn't do it. He makes a point of not doing it, and I love the fact that he makes a point of not doing it. Here's the sentence. He says, there is a spiritual enlightenment associated with the sacrament, and now he gets to this point where he's going to list three things. He does the first two with P, and then he breaks the pattern by having the third thing not be a P. He says, it is personal, it is powerful, and it is needed. Oh my gosh. I love you, Elder Johnson. Thank you so much for not having three words that start with P. And the very fact that he breaks that pattern signals to me that he's doing this intentionally. This is the kind of thing I would be doing if I were speaking in general conference, if the leaders of the church ever made the huge error of asking me, to speak in general conference, I would break the pattern of alliteration as a signal to the other speakers that maybe they should go and do likewise. Okay, we're getting toward the end here. We're up to Take Up Our Cross by Elder Ulysses Suarez, another member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And he talks about, of course, take up your cross and the idea if we have to bear our burdens in this world, even as Jesus bore his cross through the crucifixion. And we have a great deal of problems that we have to deal with, and some have different problems than others. And in the context of this, he has to talk about homosexuals. Because of course, that is a huge cross to bear within the context of the LDS church and from the point of view of an LDS apostle, here's what he says. The same principles apply to those of you who are experiencing same gender attraction. Even the phrasing of that is somewhat offensive. No, if I'm homosexual, I'm not experiencing same gender attraction. I am gay. I don't think that Elder Suarez would say, talking about himself, that he experiences different gender attraction I think it would just say I'm straight. In the same way, gay people do not experience same gender attraction. That is the way they are. They're not straight people experiencing gay feelings. They are gay. But once again, the same principles apply to those of you who are experiencing same gender attraction and feel discouraged and helpless. Well, thank you for recognizing the fact that gay people in the church feel discouraged and helpless. Why do they feel discouraged and helpless, Elder Suarez? Could you help us out with that one, huh? The reason they feel discouraged and helpless, as if I have to say it, is because of the church's position on gay people. That's why they feel discouraged and helpless. And really, the message underneath this is they should be straight. And the reason they feel discouraged and helpless is because they can't get straight. They are hopelessly caught in this web of experiencing same gender attraction and they cannot change it. That's why they feel discouraged and helpless. He goes on, and maybe for this reason, some of you are feeling that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for you anymore, i.e. the LDS church is not for you anymore. And indeed, there are a lot of gay people who are in the church who are now out of the church because, as Elder Suarez says, They did feel that the LDS church was not for them anymore. But he's going to invite these people back, of course. If that is the case, I want to assure you that there is always hope in God the Father and in his plan of happiness. Well, what hope are you talking about? Elder Suarez, are you talking about the hope that ultimately, eventually, if not today, if not tomorrow, then sometime after we're dead, all the gay people will be made straight? I'm getting kind of a suspicion that that's what you're talking about. He says, if that is the case, I want to assure you that there is always hope in God the Father and in his plan of happiness, in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice and in living their loving commandments, which is really the point he's driving to. There's always hope if we just do everything that they tell us to do, which is if you're gay, don't act gay and you'll be made straight in the hereafter, if not sooner. And I think I'm going to play that quote too, because... I find this really a problematic portion of this talk and a problematic portion of this entire general conference.
2: The same principles apply to those of you who are
0: experiencing same-gender attraction and feel discouraged and helpless. And maybe for this reason, some of you are feeling that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for you anymore. If that's the case, I want to assure you that there is always hope in God the Father and in his plan
1: of happiness, in Jesus Christ, and in his atoning sacrifice, and in
0: living their loving commandments. And later on in this talk, He gets to the point where he's talking about people who are doing everything that they're supposed to do and yet are miserable. Remember, that's the second kind of talk that I talked about earlier when I was talking about President Ivory's talk. There's the one set of talks that talk about do everything you're supposed to do and you'll be happy, it's guaranteed. And then there's the other kind of talk that says, if you're doing everything you're supposed to do and you're not happy, well, there's a reason. You can fill in the blank what the reason is, but there's a reason for it. And he gets to that second kind of message here later in his talk, Elder Suarez does. Here's what he says. We all face adverse circumstances in our lives that make us feel sad, helpless, hopeless, and sometimes even weakened. Some of these feelings may lead us to question the Lord. Why am I experiencing these situations? Or why are my expectations not met? What expectations? Well, the expectations that people like President Iron give us when they say it's guaranteed that we'll be happy if we follow the commandments. Why are my expectations not met? After all, I am doing everything in my power to carry my cross and follow the Savior. So once again, this is the kind of talk in General Conference where it is explained that you will still suffer even though you do everything you are supposed to do. I guess the only positive thing I can say about this part is that Elder Suarez doesn't hopelessly confuse the issue by beginning his talk by saying the opposite message of guaranteed happiness in exchange for obedience, like President Eyring did in his talk. Oh my gosh, and now we have another entry into the General Conference Death March story by Elder Suarez. It starts, I recently had the opportunity to minister to a widowed sister named Franca Kalamasi, who is suffering from a debilitating illness. We are to the point now in General Conference, and I've been doing these reviews for a number of years, where as soon as an apostle or a church leader starts talking about having the opportunity to meet with or minister to or any kind of story about somebody who's sick or injured, I know from the beginning what the ending is going to be. And indeed, This poor sister, Franca Kalamasi, as soon as I read this line that he recently had the opportunity to minister to her, I know that things are not going to go well for Sister Kalamasi, who is suffering from a debilitating illness. He goes and gives some background information about Sister Kalamasi, and then he goes on and says this, when the first symptoms of the disease, we don't know what the disease was, but it's a bad disease. It's a disease that's so bad the priesthood can't heal it, apparently. When the first symptoms of the disease began to appear, her bishop gave her a blessing. We have it right there, black and white. Her bishop gave her a blessing. That should be the end of the story. The next line should be, and she was healed, and the priesthood works, and the church is true. But no, he goes on. At that time, she told her bishop that she was ready to accept the Lord's will, expressing her faith to be healed as well as her faith to endure her illness to the end. So here, Elder Suarez gives his version of Elder Bednar's talk, Faith Not to Be Healed. She has the faith to be healed, but she also has the faith not to be healed. And guess which one of those faiths is gonna win out? If you guess the faith not to be healed, you go to the head of the class. He concludes the story. We all know where this is going. During my visit, while holding Sister Kalamasi's hand and looking into her eyes, I saw an angelic glow emanating from her countenance, there's that glow again, reflecting her confidence in God's plan and her perfect brightness of hope in the Father's love and plan for her. I felt her firm determination to endure in her faith until the end by taking up her cross, despite the challenges she was facing. That sister's life is a testimony of Christ, a statement of her faith and devotion to him. And unfortunately, now I'm adding this, and unfortunately, that sister's death is a testimony that there is no healing power in the priesthood. And once again, I've got to say, this is not a funny story. I'm not making fun of Sister Kalamasi. This is tragic, okay? And I'm also not saying that every single person in the church who gets sick should be healed by the priesthood. Obviously, people are going to get sick. Obviously, people are going to die. You can't push death off indefinitely by giving priesthood blessings. I understand that. What I am saying is that if the priesthood has power to heal people, as the LDS Church teaches it does. Why is it that we cannot hear one freaking story in General Conference about the priesthood healing somebody? Instead, we have story after story after story in General Conference of people getting sick, people getting injured, getting priesthood blessings, and dying anyway. Not only is General Conference boring, it's also an absolute downer. Okay, and now we get to the penultimate talk given by... Elder Neil L. Anderson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And the title of his talk is one word. It's Fruit. Now, here's what I want you to do. (laughs) I think that Elder Anderson should have planned this out a little bit better. Because if you go to the LDS Church's website, okay, which I'm doing right now, and you go to the General Conference page from October of 2019, and you scroll down to Elder Anderson's talk, which is the second from the last one in the Sunday afternoon session, and you actually click on that, what comes up is a nice picture of Elder Anderson standing at the pulpit in the General Conference Center, and right underneath his picture is the word fruit. <laughs> okay, anyway, going on with his talk. Now, here's what he says, because he knows that he's the second to the last speaker. He knows that President Nelson's gonna be the speaker after him, so what he says is in a very humble manner. I know what you were thinking. This is his opening words. I know what you were thinking. Just one more speaker, and we will hear from President Nelson. Hoping to keep you alert for a few minutes as we await our beloved prophet, I have selected a very appealing topic. My subject is fruit. Oh my gosh. I roll emoji insert here. (laughs) My subject is fruit. Well, apparently Elder Anderson now has a friendly rivalry going on with Elder Bednar. Elder Bednar is going to talk about vegetables like pickles, but Elder Anderson is going to one-up him and he's going to talk about fruit. And he's going to let us know that he knows the names of a lot of different kinds of fruit. He says with the color, texture and sweetness of berries, bananas, watermelons and mangoes or of more exotic fruit like kiwi, or kiwano. What? Does it really say kiwano? Hang on a second. I thought it said kiwi or pomegranate. Let me go back to this page. He does. He says kiwano. I don't know what kiwano is. Is that like the full name for kiwi? This is like Elder Bednar instead of saying Gazelle, he says Topi. <laughs> Elder Anderson, instead of saying kiwi, he says kiwano or pomegranate. That is an exotic fruit, Elder Anderson. I'd never heard of a kiwano before. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm getting punch drunk here. Let me go on with his talk. And, of course, he's going to talk about the different usages of the word fruit in the scriptures, like by the fruits you shall know them and the tree of life and the fruit, which represents the love of God. All that's expected since the subject of his talk is fruit and it's really interesting too because we know that the interpretation that's given in the book of mormon about the fruit of the tree of life is that it is the love of god but he's going to make an extrapolated interpretation of that to encompass a whole lot more ground than what the book of mormon says here's what he says partaking of the fruit of the tree also symbolizes that we embrace the ordinances and covenants of the restored gospel being baptized receiving the gift of the holy ghost And entering the house of the Lord to be endowed with power from on high. That's quite an extrapolation. That is a remarkable exegesis there. Elder Anderson. In fact, that's really not an exegesis so much as it is an eisegesis. That's not so much understanding what the text says as it is reading your own understanding back into the text. Exegesis versus eisegesis. And now he goes on to talk about the challenge of staying true. Now, you remember that I've talked about how there are certain themes in this conference. He acknowledges that as well. He says, as has been said many times in this conference, we continue to face distractions and deceptions confusions and commotion, enticements and temptations that attempt to pull our hearts away from the savior and the joys and beauties we have experienced in following him. So it has been said many times in this conference, this is a theme. He recognizes it as well. And once again, this shows his familiarity with what was going to be said in conference, even before he got up and gave his talk toward the end of the last session. He goes on to complain a bit about alternate voices, such as Radio Free Mormons, telling people the truth about the history of the church and its leaders. Here's what he says. In our world today, the adversary's construction crews, that's me, Foreman Radio Free Mormon, the adversary's construction crews are working overtime, and I have been working overtime for the past two weeks, thank you for noticing, hastily inflating the large and spacious building. The expansion has spread across the river hoping to envelop our homes, while the pointers and the scoffers, those would be the pointers and the scoffers in the building, while the pointers and the scoffers wail day and night on their internet megaphones. So according to Elder Anderson, I'm a pointer and I'm a scoffer, and I wail day and night on my internet megaphones. Now I have to note that this is a bit ironic coming from a guy who's getting up and giving a speech to millions of people at the same time. I don't have that kind of a megaphone, Elder Anderson. You're the guy with the megaphone. I'm just one guy in a bunker behind a microphone. Elder Anderson asks his audience, begs with his audience, pleads with his audience not to let them allow their questions, he uses that word questions, to allow them to be drawn away from the gospel, i.e. from the fruit of the tree of life. Here's what he says. Please don't allow your questions to turn you away from the sweet, pure, and soul-satisfying blessings that come from the precious fruit of the tree. Now, he doesn't say it quite that straightforwardly. He puts questions in there with a lot of other things that he doesn't want the members to cause them to turn away from the church. Here's the full quote, just to be complete. Please don't allow your questions, the insults of others, faithless friends, or unfortunate mistakes and disappointments to turn you away from the sweet, pure, and soul-satisfying blessings that come from the precious fruit. Well, it's not just our questions, Elder Anderson, that are causing us to leave the church. It's not the questions that we have It's the answers that we are finding to those questions, the answers that you are steadfastly determined to keep us from knowing about, the true answers, the correct answers, the real history of the church. Not only will you not tell us what the answers are, you won't even tell us what the questions are. You will only speak of them in general terms without going into any detail. This is not the sign of someone who is secure in their position. So please don't tell us that it is our questions that are leading us away from the church because that could not be further from the truth. It is not the questions that are the problem, it is the answers that are the problem. And now Elder Anderson wants to get in his contribution to the litany of stories in this general conference alone of people being injured and not healed. He introduces this by letting us know from the beginning that this guy dies and is not healed by the priesthood. He says, in June, my wife Kathy and I attended the funeral of Jason Hall. At the time of his passing, he was 48 years old. Mmm, that's too young. And serving as an elder in president, because of course that's important, because that shows he was faithful. Here are Jason's words about an event that changed his life. And now he's quoting from Jason Hall, the guy who passed away at 48 years old last June. At age 15, I was in a diving accident. I broke my neck and was paralyzed from the chest down. Now, at this point, I thought, wait a second. Did we hear a story that was very similar to this earlier in General Conference? And I went back and checked. And yes, we did. But it's a different story. It's a different person. It's another person who was not healed by the priesthood. I broke my neck and was paralyzed from the chest down. I lost complete control of my legs and partial control of my arms. I could no longer walk, stand, or feed myself. I could barely breathe or speak. "'Dear Father in heaven,' I begged, "'if I could only have my hands, I know I could make it. "'Please, Father, please. "'Keep my legs, Father. "'I just pray for the use of my hands.'" So, was his prayer answered? No, because, Elder Anderson continues, "'Jason never received the use of his hands. "'Isn't this sad? "'Isn't this tragic? "'Why are you telling us this story, Elder Anderson? "'Are you telling us this story to make us know "'and understand and believe "'that God does not answer prayers?' Are you telling us this story to make us know and understand and believe that there is no healing power in the priesthood because obviously this guy jason hall got priesthood blessings that he would be able to use his hands and obviously they did not work jason never received the use of his hands oh and now elder anderson anticipates exactly what it is that i and people like me would say about this story right because now he's going to use this as an opportunity to cast us as the bad guys The ones with the questions, (laughs) the ones with the questions, right? The ones with the doubts, the ones who are wondering why it is the church teaches out of one side of its mouth that it has priesthood power to heal people, but then it tells only stories about priesthood power that never heals people. Elder Anderson asks the question now, can you hear the voices from the spacious building? Jason Hall, God does not hear your prayers. If God is a loving God, how could he leave you like this? Why have faith in Christ? Those are the questions that Elder Anderson now puts in the mouth of people from the Great and Spacious Building taunting Jason Hall for not having his prayers answered that he could use his hands again. But I will say to you, Elder Anderson, that one question that you forgot to put in my mouth is the question that I actually ask is, why didn't the priesthood blessing that Jason Hall obviously received work? Why do you claim to have priesthood power to heal people when you never heal people by the priesthood power? He goes on with his talk. Jason Hall heard their voices, but he did not heed them. Instead, he feasted upon the fruit of the tree. See, once again, the theme of his talk is about the fruit, right? He feasted upon the fruit of the tree. His faith in Jesus Christ became immovable. Why? Because God didn't answer his prayer to be able to use his hands again? He graduated from the university and married Colette Coleman in the temple, describing her as the love of his life. Well, I think that's nice. I think it's great that he got married and they got married in the temple and she's the love of his life. That really isn't the issue that I'm talking about here. After 16 years of marriage... Another miracle, their precious son, Coleman, was born. That's nice, that's good. He goes on a little bit further down. Speaking at Jason's funeral, now he doesn't say exactly how he died. One's left to surmise that he died as a result of complications from the original diving accident. Speaking at Jason's funeral, 10-year-old Coleman, that's their son who's now 10 years old at the time his dad passes away, 10-year-old Coleman said his dad taught him this, Heavenly Father has a plan for us. Earth life would be awesome, And we could live in families. But we would have to go through hard things and we would make mistakes. Coleman continued. Now listen carefully. Coleman continued. This is just a 10-year-old boy. I'm not criticizing him. But sometimes out of the mouths of babes do come pearls of wisdom. And this is going to be one of those. Heavenly Father sent his son Jesus to earth. This is Coleman, the 10-year-old boy, speaking at his dad's funeral. Heavenly Father sent his son Jesus to earth. His job was to be perfect, to heal people to love them. Coleman says that Jesus' job was to heal people, and yet his dad was not healed by Jesus Christ or by his priesthood. Once again, I'm not criticizing Coleman. I'm not making fun of him or his family. I'm just saying that the irony is so thick I could cut it with a knife. And then Coleman goes on to make this poignant observation that Jesus came to earth to heal people, to love them, and then to suffer for all of our pain, sorrows, and sins. Then he died for us. Then Coleman added this. This almost gets me. Okay, it does get me. Because he did this, Jesus knows how I feel right now. That's sweet. That's powerful. And I just wish that Coleman didn't have to feel the way he did right then because the priesthood worked and could have healed his dad. That's what I wish. You know, that is... Excuse me. Let me get a hold of myself there. That is the last talk in General Conference that mentions one of these stories of people being injured and not healed. And I want to do a brief recount of how many there were. Now, the way I do this is once again, I take all the talks from General Conference. I take them and I copy them and I paste them all into a Word document. And this Word document is 128 pages long. I think I mentioned that in the first episode, the first of eight episodes, by the way, in this series. And what I do is if there's something that interests me or something that I want to comment on, I highlight it in yellow. But if there's a general conference death march story, I highlight it in green. So I'm able to go back and identify those readily as I scroll through. So let me go back to the top of this and let's see how many there were. Okay, there is the first one about Jack Rushton back in 1989 serving as president of the Irvine Stake. Oh, he was that first guy who had the similar story to Jason Hall. But yes, that's a different person. He's the one who during a family vacation on California coast body surfing, waves swept him into a submerged rock, breaking his neck. That's right, that's the first story in this general conference death march. Oh, the second one was about David and Sister Bednar visiting a young sister whose husband had been killed a few days earlier in a tragic accident. Oh, here's number three where Elder Alvarado was talking about his sister back when he was a kid getting ill and the family having to fly to the Salt Lake Temple from Puerto Rico to be sealed. Apparently without her, she was not healed by the priesthood. That's number three. Number four was Bonnie Corden talking in women's session about her friend Ashton who passed away after a six-year battle with cancer. Number five, number five is one that I actually skipped over. I have to talk about this very quickly. This was Elder Walter F. Gonzalez in his talk titled The Savior's Touch. This was from the Sunday morning session of General Conference that I went over yesterday. I did not hit his talk. Let me briefly state that he talks about the story in the New Testament of Jesus healing the man with leprosy where he says, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And then Jesus touches him and says, I will. And he ends up making him clean, healing him from the leprosy. And now Elder Gonzalez likens this to people who actually have illnesses but are not healed, but they feel better because they know that God cares about them. He says, much like the leper, we can find strength and comfort in this life by accepting his will. Well, that's not really much like the leper. The leper was healed. He didn't just accept God's will. And he gives this example. This is number five. Some years ago, Zulma, Z-U-L-M-A. That's his wife. My wife, my better half, my best part, all three, received some difficult news just two weeks before the wedding of one of our children. She had a tumor in her parotid gland. I'm not sure where that is, but it sounds painful. And it was growing rapidly. Her face began swelling, so it must be somewhere up in your head. Her face began swelling and she was to immediately undergo a delicate operation. Okay, wait a second. What about the priesthood? Shouldn't the priesthood come in here somewhere to heal her? Apparently not. We're just going to talk about the operation. She was to immediately undergo a delicate operation. Many thoughts ran through her mind and weighed on her heart. Was the tumor malignant? How would her body recover? Would her face become paralyzed? How intense would the pain be? Would her face be permanently scarred? Would the tumor return once removed? Would she be able to attend the wedding of our son? Can I get a priesthood blessing to heal me? No, actually... I added that last question. All the other questions are in the talk. All these other questions are represented as going through his wife's mind, but never once can I get a priesthood blessing to heal me. That question apparently never even crosses her mind. As she lay in the operating room, he says she felt broken. In that very moment, he says the spirit whispered to her that she had to accept the will of her father. Yay, she had the faith not to be healed. This is a wonderful story after all. She then decided to place her trust in God, blah, 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 blah. She strongly felt that whatever the result of the operation, his will would be best for her. Soon she drifted into surgical sleep. We don't know exactly what the result is because he doesn't tell us, but he does say that she found strength and comfort from surrendering her will to that of the Father. That day, God blessed her greatly. Not exactly sure what that means. I don't know if she died. Hopefully she didn't die. Hopefully she got better. But what we do know from this story is that if she got better, it was all attributable to the operation and had nothing to do with priesthood power to heal her. So that's number five in our hit list, pardon the pun, of General Conference Death March stories. Number six was President Irving's story that we just went over earlier in this podcast about the guy he visited in the hospital who didn't live to see another day. Number seven is Elder Suarez's story about Sister Franca Calamasi, who died from a debilitating illness in spite of priesthood blessings. Number eight was a story about Jason Hall, the other guy who managed to get paralyzed by breaking his neck in a diving accident. And that's all. That's it. Eight stories. You know, I think that's enough for one general conference. Eight stories of people being injured and not being healed by priesthood blessings, not being protected by God, not having God answer their prayers. It is eight for eight. Once again, we're batting 1,000 in General Conference, October 2019, of people getting sick or injured and not, repeat, not being healed by priesthood power. The LDS Church continues to bat 1,000 in this category. And so now finally, finally, we get to President Nelson's concluding comments. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this because really, there's not that much to say about it. He talks about all the temples that the LDS Church has in the world and that they're gonna keep building them. He says, of course, the crowning jewel of the restoration is not Jesus Christ, it's the Holy Temple. Its sacred ordinances and covenants are pivotal to preparing a people who are ready to welcome the Savior at his second coming. Presently, we have 166 dedicated temples. I don't know what we'll say when it gets to 666, but I guess we'll have to find out. Presently, we have 166 dedicated temples and more are coming. Remember, he announced those in the general women's session the night before, which I thought was a nice touch to make that announcement in the women's conference. I give him props for that. But why is it? Why are we still building temples? Why are we continuing to build temples, President Nelson, when the membership is not increasing? When, if anything, the active membership, the temple attending membership is shrinking. Why are we continuing to build these temples? Is it simply because we have enough money stockpiled to finance these temples and we want to continue to build them as an outward sign to indicate that we are still growing as a church when actually the membership records and the membership rolls reflect something different? different. I have no idea why it is the LDS Church continues to build temples, except it seems like they're building temples for temple's sake. It is clear that the number of members is not growing in order to require an increased number of temples, but that is being done for publicity. Much like the Scientologists end up erecting beautiful buildings, which end up being empty, they're doing the buildings in order to show people, hey, Scientologists are here, we got these great beautiful buildings, but the fact that they're empty shows that those buildings are not really needed for the membership. What they're needed for is the people who are non-members to hopefully attract them to the religion and serve sort of as a very expensive billboard for Scientology, just the way the temples serve as a very expensive billboard for Mormonism. He talks about the modest changes in the temple recommend questions, which I'm not gonna go into here. I don't think they're really that remarkable. And now at the end of his comments, he talks about this coming general conference, the April 2020 general conference that's gonna start tomorrow. And this is where he announces that it's going to be unlike any other general conference. And these are the words that have now been interpreted by some as meaning Coronavirus is coming, and not, hey, we're going to have a big celebration about the 200th anniversary of the first vision. I will read them in context here so we can understand what it was that he was really getting at. Now, I would like to turn to another topic plans for the coming year. In the springtime of the year 2020, we are going to have a massive virus that is going to spread across the world out of China, and we will. Oh, oh, wait a second. Wait a second. No, he doesn't really say that. He says, in the springtime of the year 2020, it will be exactly 200 years since Joseph Smith experienced the theophany that we know as the first vision, and etc. And then he goes on a few paragraphs down to say, thus the year 2020 will be designated as a bicentennial year. General conference next April will be different from any previous conference. In the next six months, I hope that every member in every family We'll prepare for a unique conference by going out to your stores and loading up on lots of bottled water and toilet paper. No, he doesn't even say that. We'll prepare for a unique conference that will commemorate the very foundations of the restored gospel. That's why he was saying it was going to be unique, because it's the 200th anniversary. It's the bicentennial. And he concludes by saying, meanwhile, please be assured that revelation continues in the church. Now, it won't really be revelation about anything, uh, I don't know, important, like there's a virus coming that you might want to get prepared for in advance. It won't be that. But there is other kinds of revelation in the church. Revelation about changing this program, cutting that program back, changing the temple recommend questions, you know, the really important kinds of revelation. That kind of revelation, we can be assured, still continues in the church. Okay, that's it. That's it. That's the end of part eight. That's the end of the series dealing with General Conference McNuggets from General Conference October 2019. I hope that you've enjoyed this eight-part series. My gosh, this eight-part series dealing with the talks from General Conference from October of 2019, which I have gotten out in eight separate podcasts over the course of two weeks. Eight podcasts, two weeks. Man, am I doing my part to help morale during this coronavirus. And so, until next time, please remember... Wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water. Stay away from crowds. Practice social distancing of six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, yes, together, we will lick this coronavirus. The coronavirus that the prophet of God, President Russell and Nelson, saw coming six months ago. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air.
2: Trust your heart and you